Well, the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers came out in 1954. It was very well received by audiences and critics alike, very popular musical. Uh, something tells me that if it came out these days for the first time, then uh, maybe it would not have received uh, such a, a warm reception from, from the critics. How many people here are uh, familiar enough with the plot that they could retell it? Okay, good. Um, part of Americana. I, I grew up watching it uh, with my grandmother as well, but for those of you who don't know, set in the 1850s uh, in a backwoods Oregon town, uh, Adam Pontepe is looking for a wife. He's very impressed with the cooking skills and the housekeeping skills of a young lady named Millie, and so they rush into marriage singing a wonderful, wonderful day. Soon Millie is shocked to find out that not only will she be cooking and keeping house for her husband, but also his six boisterous brothers. And uh, it's no shock why they are unmarried. They are uncouth, uh, impolite, they don't know how to talk to ladies, and so uh, Millie tries to make it her mission in life to reform their um, mountain man ways and teaching them manners, teaching them personal hygiene and cleanliness, and how to talk to women. Well, uh, eventually they take her advice and they go into town uh, for a, a barn raising social and a barn dance and they meet six young ladies that all seem interested in them and they all become smitten with these six young ladies. The problem is that there's six other suitors as well, six other men who were kind of there first and so there's a fight and because of the fight, the six brothers are kicked out of the town and they they're back at the cabin and they're all forlorn because now they're in love with these six maidens that they can't have. And so um, Millie asks her husband, Adam, to please do something about this. And so Adam um, sits them down and reads them a Bible story that gives them an idea of what to do. And so they hatch this plot where they go into town and they kidnap these six girls and bring them home just uh, in time to start an avalanche that blocks the road, a snow avalanche, so now the townspeople can't come and get them, and they're going to marry their six brides and live happily ever after, and no one can interfere except one thing, they forgot, to, they forgot to hijack a pastor to do the ceremony. So now they're stuck, they can't get a pastor, so uh, throughout the winter, the boys have to go sleep in the barn, the girls sleep in the house, and... Over time, they warm to the idea because there's just a lot of singing. I don't know. They sing a bunch of songs, and eventually the singing changes their mind. They warm to the idea of marrying their kidnappers. Um, I think they call that Stockholm Syndrome, but that wasn't around in 1950. So anyway, they, they decide they want to get married, and um, they can't wait for the snow to melt so that they can do this. And then the snow does melt, and the townspeople come in, and they want to, you know, they want to hang the brothers who kidnapped these girls. And so the, all these angry townsfolk show up to do that, but the girls go hide away because they don't want to be, they don't want to be rescued. They want to get married. And, oh, there's a very important detail. In the meantime, Adam and Millie, they have a baby. So when the townspeople show up, they discover the baby and very fearful that the baby belongs to one of the unwed sisters, um, the, the father of one of them, who also happens to be the pastor, the reverend, he asks, whose baby is this? And all six of the girls say, the baby's mine. So now they have to have a shotgun wedding. And so the fathers all agree, and they have a collective shotgun wedding, and the six brides marry the, the six brothers, and everybody lives happily ever after. There were no lawsuits or therapy or PTSD or anything like that, as they would be today. 
But here's the crux. Guess what passage they read from the Bible that gave them the idea to go kidnap their brides? You guessed it, Judges chapter 21. So turn in your Bibles to Judges, the days the Judges ruled Israel for the very last time, chapter 21. Where we really see like the final crash in this downward spiral of moral anarchy. Um, one of my kids missed the service the other day and said that, um, I asked, did you watch it online? And they said, no, but I knew what you said, that there would be moral chaos and anarchy and that everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel and, and this is what it'll be like if you don't know the Bible. I was like, okay, that's good enough, you watch. Um, <laughs> so for the last time, though, I'm going to prove that that wasn't me saying that. That's in the Bible, right? And so you'll remember the context here. Um, the, the last thing that we, we saw was that the Levite, um, his concubine, his mistress, had been really sacrificed um, to, to save his skin, and she dies, and he dismembers her into 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 um, tribes of Israel to show how shocking this is and how devastating this is. And the, the division of this woman actually did exactly what it was meant to. It united the tribes, and they came together, and they decided that this type of evil is not tolerated in Israel. Um, it's interesting how all the other evil evil that led to it wasn't the problem. Um, but just this final thing that this, this one town of Gibeah did this thing to this woman, they were going to come and they were going to um, ask the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, to give up this town of Gibeah. But the Benjamites decided to side with the sinners and say, no, these, we're going to be loyal to our brothers even though they did this terrible thing and we're not going to give them up. And so the united tribes fight against Benjamin and there's a civil war and um, the attack runs away with itself, and it led almost to the extinction of the tribe of Benjamin, leaving only 600 surviving men in the whole tribe and no women and children. So this, this tribe is about to be extinct. And as we go on, we're going to look tonight at two signs that your faith is not biblical. Two signs your faith is not biblical is when your religion, one, exploits technicalities to hide sin, and two, excludes the vulnerable from protection. You know, you're just doing something wrong. You're interpreting the Bible wrongly if your faith is looking for technicality so that you can sin and excluding the vulnerable from protection, which is one of the things that God is most concerned about. So for a little recap, let's read actually in chapter 20, verse 44. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways. They were pursued hard to get him, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. In other words, what a waste. They could have been fighting for Israel. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness of the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, the, the men, well, actually they're meaning the people, all the men, the women, children, everyone, and beasts, even the animals, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So the tribes here exterminate Benjamin, leaving only these 600 male survivors, but the folly isn't over. They do something that we saw earlier, something that Jephthah did. They make a rash vow. So chapter 1 starts off with this. Now the men of Israel had sworn, meaning they'd sworn a vow, 
at Mizpah. No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So, with only 600 men and no women being there, the men can't marry any Benjamite woman. They can't marry the Canaanite woman. That's against the law, too. And now all of the other tribes make this pact, this treaty, this vow that they swear that none of us will give our daughters for these 600 men to marry. And so when these 600 men die out, there will only be 11 tribes in Israel, which is really rash. It's really, they're just, they're going way too far. There's no restraint to what they've done. And they make this decision. And as we shall see, they still think of this silly vow that they make as way more important than the survival of an entire tribe. So Israel begins to regret this decision after they see the implications of it. Like, oh, I guess we didn't quite gain this out. Uh, we didn't think this through. We're actually going to lose one of the tribes of Israel. And so they blame God for letting this happen. Look at verse 2. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept bitterly. And they said, Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Like this is God's fault. They're asking God, why did this happen? They're the ones that did this. And they're blaming God, saying, why would you let this? They're the ones that pursued Benjamin. While they, the, the, the tribe had been defeated. They didn't have to kill all the innocent people. They didn't have to burn down all the towns. They didn't have to chase all the people running away, but they did. They kept at it and kept at it. And then they make this, this rash vow. They make it. And when they look at the implications and the consequences of the situation, they say, why, God, did you let this happen? Isn't that so much like us? Where we find ourselves in very hot water in life and we cry out to God, why, why me? Why did you let this happen? But if you look carefully, often it is that you're in that hot water because you climbed in. You made a series of decisions that were against the wisdom of Scripture. And you might even have made decisions that, as we shall see later, technically aren't even wrong or sinful, but they're just not the wisest move. And you make a foolish decision after another foolish decision after another foolish decision, thinking, well, at least I'm not doing anything overtly, blatantly prohibited in Scripture. And then your life is awry, and you say, why did this happen? Whereas God says, no, you should embrace wisdom. And you should trust me. And you should do what I say, and if you obey, you'll be kept safe from these things. And so we sometimes plunge headlong into sin and wonder why our lives are full of the consequences of sin. You sometimes hear people say this, if, there's, if God is so good and he's in control, why is there so much evil in the world? Why does God let there be evil in the world? And the very people saying it aren't taking stock of their own lives. It's not just that there's evil in the world. There's evil in the world because of sin, including yours. And if you really wanted God to wipe out all the sin and make sure that there was no evil in the world, you'd be dead a long time ago. And so they fail to acknowledge that the evil in this world is a result of sin including our own sin. It comes from our hearts. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot, tempt, cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
then when it has when it has conceived gives birth to sin the desire is conceived and gives birth to sin and when the sin is fully grown it brings forth death so these consequences come the 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 idea for the sin is conceived in the heart and after it very it fleshes itself out and you commit the act there's always a consequence and then people say well god tempted me no he didn't so now the israelites are in this kind of jam and so they're looking for a loophole they're looking for a some way out of their vow that they've made so look at verse five the people of israel said which of all the tribes of israel did not come up in the assembly to yahweh for they had taken a great oath them and their oaths if they just stopped making oaths, everything would be fine. They had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to Yahweh to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion on, for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. And what shall we do for wives for those who are left since we have sworn by Yahweh that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, Hmm, what one is there of the tribes of Israel did not come up to Yahweh to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people had mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with the male, you shall devote to destruction. So, I mean, this is just, this is just getting worse and worse. Um, they need a legal loophole. They need some sort of technicality because they need to keep their precious vow. And so they decide to invoke another vow that they had made and, and, and see if they can come up with some sort of legal machination to get out of this mess and so they check one of the vows that they made when they got together was everybody needs to come everybody needs to send somebody everybody needs to send a representative in fact it was a tenth remember from each tribe a tenth of your tribe has to come and if there's any little pocket of people that refuses to send someone then the tribes aren't truly united and then we'll come and we'll kill you and everyone's like yeah yeah we vow we'll and everybody sends and then they do the whole thing and everything and afterwards they're like oh poor benjamin now, Benjamin, now we regret it. Now we have compassion. It's our brother. And, and now there's going to be this one tribe missing. Why, God, why? Okay, I know we did it, but, you know. And then, huh, let's just go and see. Maybe there's a way out. So they go check the attendance register, and bingo. There's this town of Jabesh Gilead who didn't send anybody. And they're like, okay, 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 okay. Just hear me out. I know this is crazy, but this is going to work. Trust me. What we do now is we're so sorry that we killed our own people. We're just going to kill one more town, and that's going to fix it. We're going to wipe out everyone in the town, all the men, all the children, all the women, except virgins, unmarried women. You see where I'm going with this? Okay, this is going to work. So here's our loophole, because um, we said that none of us could give our daughters to the Benjamites. So what we'll do is we'll just kill all the people who could give their daughters and the daughters will just be left. And then they can marry and no one gave them. You see? It's technical, but it's there if you've got to want it. 
So we'll just kill all the dads and the moms and everything, and now you've got, you've got you know, 600 unmarried women and 600 unmarried men, and they're just going to meet each other, and no one's giving their daughter. So technically, we didn't violate our vow. There's only one problem. <clears throat> the math didn't work out. There weren't 600 unmarried women. To me, just this pause for the moment and just think about the men in the room coming up with this plan. You know, around the boardroom. You know, right? Hey, Bob, you've been kind of quiet. Don't you want to weigh in? Yeah, well, um, sure. How about this? How about we keep killing more Israelites until we figure out the solution? I don't know, Bob. No, no, no. Hear me out. And then he spills the plan and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, this is going to work. Let's try it. What could possibly go wrong? So, this happens in our spiritual lives too, where we start looking for technicalities. It's like, okay, I want, I'm a Christian. I want to please God. I've got to keep the Bible. But there's this other thing I really want to do. So let me go and read the Bible in such a way where I can find a loophole that lets me do the very thing I know God doesn't really want me to do. But if he didn't specifically outlaw it in a way that's going to get me under church discipline from the elders, then I can do it. Then I can just say to them, well, technically... Technically, this isn't wrong. I've, I've heard this from unmarried couples saying, well, I know the Lord didn't want us to have sex before marriage, so we did everything but the actual act. So technically, we didn't do what you're accusing us of. I've heard someone say, uh, I know the Bible says don't steal, but I just downloaded it illegally temporarily to use it, and then afterwards I was going to delete it. So it's not stealing. It's more like borrowing. The Bible doesn't say you can't borrow. I've actually had a woman tell me this in counseling when I said, but you need to love your husband. She said, no. Technically, the Bible does not command me to love my husband. And I was like, I'll get back to you. And I came back and I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Didn't know that. The Bible does not tell me to love my husband. It just tells me to respect my husband. It tells my husband to love me, but technically I don't have to love my husband. Um, I was very new in the ministry, and I was like bewildered. I was like, this is brilliant. I mean, I know it's wrong. <laughs> Surely a wife must love her husband, but if it doesn't say it in the Bible, I, I think she's got me. And so I took it to my elders, and I was like, what are we going to do about this? And one of them said, doesn't the Bible say you have to love your neighbor and love your enemy? And I was like, bingo. You have to love your enemy, and you're married to him. So there you go. It counts. And she was like, oh, nuts. You know? And it was so comical because obviously God wants husbands and wives to, li to love each other. So what kind of heart is it that drives you to read the Bible so carefully to find that loophole? And you know what Jesus calls people who use technicalities and loopholes in their religion? He calls them hypocrites. Mark 7, 9, Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained for me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition and you, that you've handed down, and you do many such things. So what they were saying is that they'd come up with this little system where if all of my possessions I dedicate to the Lord, then when my parents are in financial need, 
I'm sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you because I've dedicated my finances to the Lord. Otherwise, absolutely I would. But I have to choose the Lord over you. And so Jesus said, yeah, you came up with that little technicality. And what you're missing is the command in Scripture. Obviously, God wants you to honor your parents. And he doesn't want you to honor him to the point that you're disobeying one of his other commandments. And so you've come up with a technicality that actually voids the word of God. Hypocrites. Technicalities will be the death of godliness in your life. Technicalities will be the death of godliness in your life. Don't read the scriptures to see what you can get away with. Read the scriptures to find out what God wants. As soon as you start reading the Bible with the attitude, what can I get away with? You're on dangerous ground. And so here we see in chapter 21, verse 13, the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the woman whom they had saved alive of the woman of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Note, note how the narrator is almost sarcastically pointing out that, you know, they have compassion on Benjamin because of what God did. God caused this breach. And so their, their crazy plan almost works, except that the math was out. So they've got these 400 virgins, and they've got 600 bachelors, and now there's 200 short. So... Now they go all seven brides and seven brothers for us. Um, verse 16. So then the elders of the congregation, these are the smart guys in the boardroom with Bob, you know. Um, they say, what shall we do for the wives of those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? I like how he uses the passive tense there. They are destroyed. Like this terrible thing happened to those women who died. Yeah, no, the ones that we ordered to death? Okay, those ones. Poor thing. So, um, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin, and they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. There again, the passive, like this tribe was just randomly blotted out, not because of anything we did. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters because of that pesky little vow we made. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Yeah, yeah, we know. So verse 19. So they said, behold, uh-huh. There is the yearly feast of Yahweh at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards. This is almost comical. And watch. And if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man, his wife, from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers, you know, the angry townsfolk, come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of, him, uh, of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. So do you, do you see the argument here? Okay, this is what we're going to do. We just need 200 more, and then this whole thing we can just put behind us and move on to 1 Samuel. So, there's this festival where all these virgin girls come out and dance. And what we're going to do is we're going to get all the Benjamites, and we're going to go and help our, our 200 bachelor brothers, 
and we're going to go and kidnap, kidnap us 200 virgins, and then y'all can get married. And when the pops come with the shotguns, or their brothers, or someone comes, we're, we're going to make this point. Listen, technically speaking, nobody's done anything wrong here. We didn't take your wives in battle, because that's against the law. You can't take fellow Israelites captive as slaves in battle. So we didn't do that. Technically, it wasn't a battle. No one else was fighting back. And technically, this is okay because the vow we all made, including you, is that you wouldn't give us your daughters. And guess what? You didn't give them. We took them. So, so there's this loophole. We get daughters. You didn't give them. We took them. All you have to do is put down your shotguns and everybody's happy. We live happily ever after. And so they do this. They kidnapped these girls. Verse 23, the people of Benjamin did so and took wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And then they went and returned to the inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them, you know, like nothing happened. All the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then, as if to wink at us. The narrator closes the story, the history of Israel up to this point, the whole book of Judges, with no comment on whether what happened was good or bad, on no comment of what Yahweh thinks of what just happened, but he just ends with this one epic line and then drops his mic. Verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> and that's it. That's the book of Judges for you. Now onto a snapshot of normality in Ruth, like nothing happened. And the conclusion is so awesome. It just punctuates the whole theme of the book. You just hear this crazy story, this bizarre plot line. And you're like, they killed a town of people? They wiped out the kids? So that there'd be like these unmarried women left and then they weren't enough so they went and hijacked a bunch of them and made them marry their captors and then told the parents to back off because technically we get to keep our vow? And you, you just want someone to say, what is going on here? And the narrator just reminds us, remember, there's no one in charge. This is just postmodernism. This is relativism. Everyone's just doing what they think is right. As if to say, what did you expect would happen when everyone stops figuring out what God wants? And everyone's not committed to what God wants, but what they think is right. And you suddenly have this entire inversion of your whole moral system where keeping, keeping a contract, a vow that you made, is more important to God than the lives of his people, the children. That you think that kidnapping is okay? You think that genocide is okay? Because you're keeping a little vow. Now you can almost understand the milieu that Jephthah and his daughter were in when Jephthah made that rash vow earlier on in the book, it feels like many moons ago that we were there, right? 
And, and, but now you can understand like how corrupt these people's think, how twisted their thinking was that when Jephthah says, yeah, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my house and his daughter comes and he says, no, daughter, look at this thing you've done now coming out of the house. Now I have to kill you. And she's not like, come on, dad, surely there's a loophole. She's like, yeah, you need to keep your vow. And then he sacrifices his daughter and everyone's like, yeah, no, that's super sad, but at least he didn't break his vow. What is going on here? You just need somebody who's wise to step in and say, okay, 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 okay. Let me make a ruling. Let me consult the word of God and tell you who's right and what, who's wrong and what the punishment is. And because there's no one consulting the word of God and there's no one in charge and there's no spiritual authority and everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes, things get darker and darker and darker until people have no clue what's right and wrong. Sound familiar? There's just so much that's happening in our society today that reminds me of the book of Judges. You know, in the old days, even when you had many people who were not believers, but they at least they were being taught the Bible in schools, they were, being, they were biblically literate, they understood that there was the sense of right and wrong that came from Scripture. And when someone did something that was outside of Scripture, maybe they didn't handle it the right way, you know, the scarlet A, and you had to wear this letter around, and, and, um, this, and people were being burnt because they were witches, but... These are unbelievers just trying to do their best, but at least they were, start, they were like, okay, adultery is wrong, Satanism is wrong. Nowadays, people don't even know that. You know, you get, um, the, you get glasses, you can buy these glasses, and when you put them on, they invert everything, so everything looks like upside down. But you need to be careful, because if you wear it for too long, I think it's like over a day or so, your brain adapts. And then it flips it back. And then when you take them off, everything's upside down. And then you have to wait another day for your brain to fix it again. It's almost like that's what's going on here in the book of Judges. It's like people have this, they put these glasses on and they're so twisted and so inverted that they don't know what's going on. And now you don't know if the glasses are on or off and you don't know what's right or wrong. And you think what you're doing is right, but actually it's because you've got this weird lens over. And everyone just needs to step back and ask God what he wants. And so this is one of the problems with religion, and you should know that you've taken a wrong turn in your religion when, you, when it exploits technicalities to hide sin. Secondly, when it excludes the vulnerable from protection. Now this is, not, this is a point that's not explicitly mentioned in the book of Judges, but every commentator recognizes this, and I know that you did too. As soon as you point it out to somebody, you see it all over the book of Judges. The vulnerable and their protection. So there's one more angle we need to consider this. There is a certain group of people throughout the book of Judges that consistently gets the short end of the stick. See if you can spot them. I'm just going to read out a certain number of victors, and you think in your mind, what do these people all have in common? Caleb's daughter, Akshai, is promised as a wife to whomever would capture the city in Judges 1. Yael was forced in Judges 4 by her husband, Heber, to live in enemy territory. Jephthah's daughter is killed so that he can keep his rash vow. Samson's first bride was killed in retaliation for his violence. The old man in Gibeah's virgin daughter was offered to the rapist to prevent them from attacking his guests. The one they end up raping is the Levite's concubine. 
all the Benjamite women are killed because their men wouldn't give up the rapists. The 400 women in Jabesh Gilead lose their families and are forced to marry Benjamites. The 200 girls dancing at Shiloh are kidnapped and forced to marry Benjamites. What do all these people have in common? They're all? Yeah, they're all women. Women are treated horrendously in the book of Judges. Consistently. Why? Because the Israelites are acting like Canaanites. Women, if you study world history and the history of civilization, women are consistently treated horrendously in all societies except the ones that God's wisdom and will gets introduced to. And so the Israelites are taught to honor women and look after women. And the entire Leverite system of marriage is to provide for women. But you get to the book of Judges where people don't know what's right and wrong anymore and who's getting abused. It's the woman. The chauvinism of Israelite men in Judges is so obvious it doesn't even need a comment from the narrator. So yes, Judges is obviously chauvinistic, but we should be careful not to throw up male leadership in the family church because of incidents in Judges. And so this is sometimes what feminists will do. Feminists will come and say, let's show you how badly women are treated in the Bible as a reason for us to reject what the Bible says about women. And guess where they start? They start in the book of Judges. Plenty of fodder in the book of Judges. And they'll go to other places in the Old Testament as well where women are treated poorly. In all of those cases... It's where the men are disobeying what God said, not obeying. And so what they do is they build a case saying, therefore we should reject what the New Testament says about women, specifically that women should not be pastors or elders um, holding authority, teaching authority in the church over men, and that wives should submit to their husbands. And we shouldn't look at that because of look at what else the Bible says. And they completely miss what you've all learned these weeks in Judges is that all of these are examples of what happens when you don't do what God wants. And that the solution is not, as the feminists would say, to reject what God says and to do what is right in the eyes of the feminists. Otherwise, you game that out and it will lead to the abuse of women because it always does. And aren't we seeing that play out in our society again? That feminism brought to its fullest fruit is protecting the rights of people to declare any gender they want and just declare themselves males if they want. But then, of course, you have to let the males declare themselves females. And then, of course, you have to let those male females run and swim against the other actual females. And so suddenly women are losing scholarships for athletics because they can't compete against the women in men's bodies. The women will always get the short end of the stick if you're not doing what God says. And the way to stay safe isn't to come up with something better than what Scripture says, it's to find out what Scripture actually says. And so that's why the book of Ruth is such a beautiful snapshot of normality, because here's people trying to do the right thing, and guess who gets honored and protected and provided for in the book of Ruth? The woman. And the men doing the honorable things. 
And the only men doing the honorable things, even in the book of Ruth, which takes place in the book of time of the judges, that's why I keep referring to it, are those that know and obey the will of God. Daniel Block, commentator, he says, the reader is cautioned against generalizing the problems reflected in, this final, in these final chapters to all androcentric social structures, as if the system itself is fundamentally flawed. So he says, be careful of generalizing the problems here and saying it's because it's androcentric, it's male-centered. What happens is not expressive of normal androcentrism any more than the altar in Joash's backyard, Gideon's ephod, Jephthah's vow, or Micah's images reflect normative Yahwism. He's saying, if you've been reading the book of Judges carefully, you realize nobody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's why the women are being treated this way. The entire book portrays a nation rotting at the core. I hope the study of Judges has helped shape your worldview. I hope you've seen and learned and been convinced by story after story after story that what you need more of in your life is to know God's will, to know the scriptures, to be committed to obey the scriptures, to share the scriptures with others, to teach the scriptures to your kids, to let your whole worldview be shaped by what God thinks, because what God thinks is right and it's truth. And I hope you come back regularly to the days the judges ruled Israel to remind yourself what happens when you ignore God and how society will start to rot at its core. Judges should jolt us with its electroshock therapy into action. It should make us cherish family values, male guardianship of females. It should make us suspect of relativism. It should make us study our Bibles more. And more than anything else, and this is really one of the primary messages of the book of Judges. It should make us long for a king. Not just any king. Because what's about to follow in the sequel is a bunch of people that the nation puts their hope in and lets them down time after time after time after time. And everyone's waiting for the king. The king who will come and establish his kingdom in righteousness and will not let injustice go unpunished, and will banish evil from the world, and will protect the vulnerable, and will honor those that have been exploited, and will heal people, and he will rule us, and set things right, and make things beautiful. It's for that glorious day of his appearing that we long for. Without the coming of Jesus Christ, the book of Judges ends with no hope. But here the narrator leaves us with this hope. The reason things are bad is because there's no king. But we know that a king came. And we know that he's coming again. And so whenever you look at what's happening in the news or your family or your life and you feel like the book of Judges is rearing its ugly head, just remember it's meant to make you long for a king. And that king is coming. And we say with the apostle John, come, Lord Jesus. And I hope these are all lessons that you've learned from the days the judges ruled Israel. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, it has really been a, an interesting but burdensome task to walk through the pages of the book of Judges. We've been warned of the, the darkness that lurks in our own hearts, the darkness 
that lurks in society, a society that is rotting at its core. I pray that you would help us to be beacons of light in the darkness, that we would bring healing and wholesomeness to all who know us, that we would be examples of those that love your law and obey your law and enjoy the blessing that comes from being right with you. We thank you, Lord, for sparing us from the consequences of sin and for securing us an eternal salvation. Now, as we turn to the Lord's table, I pray that you would help us to focus our minds and our hearts and our affections on our dear Lord Jesus Christ, the King who came and the King who's coming again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.